Welcome to Practically Happy, the podcast that helps you apply the science of well-being to your everyday life. I'm your host, Miranda Anderson, a Master of Applied Positive Psychology, here to help you access some strategies for lasting happiness and fulfillment. Each week, we'll dive deep into the latest research and insights from the world of positive psychology. But this isn't just another academic lecture. Practically Happy is about getting practical. I will share how you might apply these findings to your everyday life so you can experience real and tangible improvements in your happiness. As a wife and mom of three, I understand the challenges of juggling a busy family life while striving for personal well-being. That's why I'll also be sharing my own stories and experiences along the way. Because let's face it, life can get messy. Through it all, we can find and create intentional moments of joy. So whether you're looking for ways to boost your mood, improve your relationships, or simply add more enjoyment to your daily routines, Practically Happy is your guide to a practical, happy life. Hello, welcome back to the podcast. You're listening to Practically Happy with Miranda Anderson. This is episode number 268. Today, I want to introduce an idea about a new way to journal I've talked many times on the podcast about journaling your gratitude and the many, many researched evidence-based benefits of developing a practice of gratitude. Today's episode takes that practice a little bit further, maybe widens it into a little bit more holistic practice where we invite room not only for gratitude, but also for grief. You wouldn't be wrong in thinking it is a little bit paradoxical to talk about grief in a podcast about happiness. The truth is that real happiness, a full well-being in all aspects of our lives, includes all aspects of the human experience and an acceptance of things that go wrong in addition to excitement and enthusiasm and focus on things that go right. In today's show, I'll share some stories, ideas, some research, and an invitation. To get us started today, I thought that we would do a mindful moment. One of the best ways that we can create space for all of our experience, all of our emotions, is to learn and practice being present. Finding space to be still enough to be in touch with where we are how we're feeling, and make some mind, body, spirit connections. So for the next 90 seconds, I want to invite you into a place of stillness and presence. If you're driving, you can do this with your eyes open. Try to do a moving meditation. If you're walking, same thing. If you are in a place where you can just take a minute to put everything down, and either stand firmly with your feet planted or find a place to sit. Close your eyes gently. Close your eyes and take a big, deep breath in through your nose and out through your mouth. Focus on the feeling of the air passing through your nostrils. See if you can envision it coming up into your sinuses and swirling around, 
flowing down your throat in through your lungs and your lungs expanding to capacity. All of that oxygen passing through those membranes into your cells and flowing through your whole body, enlivening your system. Such an important thing, our breath, that happens automatically. Breath after breath after breath all day long. And we can bring our attention to it and feel it. If you have other thoughts creeping in your to-do list or a worrisome relationship or other things come in, acknowledge those thoughts non-judgmentally and dismiss them for now. Redirect your thoughts back to your breath and the feeling of it expanding through your body and then releasing. Take three more deep breaths with me and feel yourself here in this moment and nowhere else. One. Two. And three. Let your eyes flutter open. Move your fingers and your toes. Bring yourself back into awareness of your present state, where you are, what you're up to. And feel the peace and calm that comes through giving yourself a moment of presence. Just a moment of mindful breath. Thank you for breathing with me today. When I was in Costa Rica this summer, one of our favorite things to do was surf. I had uh, just like a handful of surfing experiences previous to this trip. I had taken a surfing class when I was a teenager in Santa Barbara. I had taken a surfing class in Hawaii. Uh, maybe another one a few years ago in Costa Rica. When I lived in Costa Rica in college, I, along with my brother and a couple friends, bought a surfboard, a shortboard, and we would play around with it. We didn't really know what we were doing. but So I'd been surfing a couple times, a handful of times. I really enjoyed it. A few years ago, when one of my good friends turned 40, out in Huntington Beach, her girlfriend, now wife, took us, who's a professional surf instructor, took us and we did an afternoon of surfing at the beach. And it was so fun. That was like the most recent surf experience I had had. And I'm just a big fan. So it was a delightful chance to practice surfing when we were there in Costa Rica for a whole month. We spent the first week up in the jungle, but then the last three weeks we took lessons and then rented surfboards about every other day the whole trip. My kids got into it. Dave got into it. We all really liked it. And it became something that I looked forward to in the morning, grabbing a board and going out and hitting the waves for a couple hours in you know, the afternoon whenever the tide was right, which we got conflicting information. I think it depends on the beach, but where we were, one instructor said it was great right around high tide. 
when the waves were closer to the beach, but your ride length would be shorter because they were crashing like close to the beach. And then another person said that for our stage, maybe it was because we're a little bit more beginner, the lower tide, like around lower tide was better because the waves were further out. This is a really flat beach where we were in Nosara, um, Playa Guiones is what it's called. And the waves would break further away so we could ride them for a little longer and then turn around and head back out. One thing that I noticed as I was trying to get from riding just on the frothy inside the break waves to, you know, level up a little bit, get a little bit better and ride a bigger wave out beyond the break, my biggest challenge was not in riding the wave. It was in getting out to a place where I was beyond the break. So if you don't have much experience with surfing or you're not familiar with you know, kind of these lines that happen right off the shore of the ocean. There's usually a breaking point where the waves turn from kind of these gentle swells into like a frothy cap. And when you're a beginner surfer on the beach we were on, you'd stay right inside. You try to catch the wave as it was frothy and you just kind of ride that foam. A more experienced surfer will go out beyond that point. So they go beyond the point where the waves are crashing into the point where they're forming. So they actually, you know, paddle onto the wave as it's coming up and cresting and then ride down the smooth front of it before it's turned over, before it has made the foam. And like I said, my biggest challenge this summer was getting out beyond the break. What I noticed was I would be paddling out or walking out the beach is actually really shallow in this area. So you're, you're mostly walking out, holding onto your board. You can be a hundred yards from shore and still be like up to your waist in the water. And I would get to the point, the crash zone, where the waves were turning over and crashing onto me. The way I was taught to get through this area was to prepare for a crash by either pushing up straight armed onto my board so that I went kind of through the foam up and over or what I think is most common in different parts of the surfing world is flipping your board over so you're riding underneath it. The wave crashes onto your board and you're kind of diving in through the middle of the wave. So it's not crashing onto you. You're, you're kind of cutting through the middle of it, tunneling through in the water, and then coming up on the other side. And here's what I noticed about myself. I didn't want to be underwater. That felt scary to me, which sounds ironic when you're in the ocean and you're surfing. I didn't want to be under the water. And so I would try to prepare myself by pushing up on my board or kind of kicking through it, almost riding it sideways. Like I was trying to avoid, I was trying to avoid the crash of the wave by sort of pretending it wasn't going to happen. So I'd push up and like kick, 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 kick to get over the top of it. And sometimes it worked, but more often I would get to where I was upright, you know, pushing up on my board, laying flat, kind of like a seal position on top of the board, trying to get over the wave and it would flip me over. And then not only would I be under the water, but I would be under the water unprepared and then be tossed around and be uncomfortable. Add to that, that getting beyond these waves is a real strength workout. Like your muscles are getting worn out. Not only are you paddling, sometimes you're pushing on your feet, you know, walking on the ground. Every time you're underwater being tossed by the waves, you're trying to like, you know, figure out how to how to get back up where there's air. The whole process was really difficult for me. And especially we had heard 
a couple of these days, the days that I was trying to go out beyond the break, were really tricky days. The instructor, maybe it was to make us feel better, but we would see him on the beach. He wasn't actually teaching us that day, but he said, you know, the, this is a really rough day. Like even professional surfers or really experienced surfers are having a hard time getting out beyond the break today just because of the nature of the wave patterns. I was pretty determined. And there was one time that I, I looked at my watch and just thought, I'm just going to paddle as long as I can. I'm going to try to get through this. I'm going to just deal with being tossed around as much as I can to get out there. And I worked on paddling, kicking, being tossed, getting back up, trying to go underneath the wave the way that I was taught, all these things for about 45 minutes. And at the end of 45 minutes, I was not beyond the break. I decided to just turn my board around, catch a frothy wave, ride it in, and sit on the sand and just pant for a while because it was exhausting. It was easier when I decided to not try to avoid the, the waves crashing, but just accept like this is going to crash and so I've got to go under it and I'm going to have to hold my breath and I'm going to have to kick hard and I'm going to have to be uncomfortable, but I'm going to be more comfortable accepting and acknowledging and passing through this discomfort like open being open to it as part of the process then i will the discomfort of trying trying to pretend that it's not happening and just getting slammed and crashed around and jumbled up inside the waves i still haven't gotten very good at getting out beyond the break but by the end of our trip with the acceptance and preparation for those waves as they were coming i was doing a, a better job. I'm thinking about this experience that I had surfing because of a great quote from Joan Didion from The Year of Magical Thinking, which is a seminal book about grief. In this quote, she says, grief is different. It has no distance. Grief comes in waves, paroxysms, sudden apprehensions that weaken the knees and blind the eyes and obliterate the dailiness of life. Virtually everyone who has ever experienced grief mentions this phenomenon of waves. As I wanted to talk today about having a grief and gratitude journal, I thought about this quote, about this book, which I really loved, and about the waves. You may wonder, like, did something happen? Is, did Miranda have some, you know, traumatic thing go on in her life recently? A loss that we don't know about? Not necessarily. Grief is, the definition of grief is usually um, talked about as the anguish experienced after a significant loss, usually the death of a beloved person. And grief includes psychological distress, separation anxiety, confusion, yearning, obsessive dwelling on the past, apprehension about the future, and... If you are currently experiencing or have experienced this type of deep personal loss, I'm so sorry. I've experienced the loss of all four of my grandparents with whom I was close. Really sad, tragic losses of a nephew a couple years ago. And the most personal, intense loss that I've experienced was a miscarriage between my two boys that affected me far deeper than I would have expected. All in all, you know, without glossing over those losses, which are relevant, I 
do feel I've been really lucky in the world of loss to not have repeated brushes with those type of deep, intense, personal deaths and losses. However, the last few years have been filled with subtle losses for everyone, myself included. COVID turned the world upside down in a, in a way that we have not yet recovered from and may never truly recover back to a place that, you know, as if it hadn't happened because it did happen. The expectations of the way that life was going to look are now different than they had been a few years ago. Along with that, life is filled with ups and downs. And as a natural optimist, my usual focus is on, okay, well, let's move on from it. What now? What do we learn from it? How does it benefit us? All really great skills, really great resilient skills. What I'm learning in my 40s is that it's also a really great skill to create space and accept and acknowledge the disappointments and the losses along with the beautiful benefits. Now, a couple weeks ago, I talked about giving space for the whole story, how I'd been telling the story of my last year, these last 12 months with a lot of, it's been really hard, here's some things that have happened, and that I wanted to balance that out with the, and it's been great, refocus on both. And today's episode is is similar in nature. It's allowing space to refocus on both. Particularly, though, I wanted to be specific about how we process grief, how we allow space for it, and if we are allowing space for it, and what that looks like for each of us. I wanted to dig in a little bit to some research surrounding grief and what it looks like, what some recommendations are, and how it might be processed well. Before we dig into that research, here's a quick word from today's podcast sponsor. Today's podcast is sponsored by EveryPlate. EveryPlate is now owned by HelloFresh, which is one of my favorite leading meal kit companies. The thing that really sets EveryPlate apart is that it is budget friendly. Save big and eat great with America's best value meal kit. These meals are cheaper than your average fast casual meal. So rather than calling for takeout or getting food delivered because you don't know what's for dinner, Sign up for every plate and have a box of fresh ingredients pre-proportioned ready for you to toss together quickly. Be part of your meal plan for 2024. You can count on every plate to make your meals easier without compromising on quality. In fact, every plate recipes include only the highest quality ingredients, including sustainably sourced seafood that meets the Monterey Bay Aquarium seafood rankings. So you know that your meals will be fresh and flavorful. This may be your year to finally stop stressing about what's for dinner. Every plate provides delicious variety with more than 25 tasty and affordable recipes that change every week. We have been huge fans of Every Plate providing a solution to simplify and make our meals more affordable. Not only can I make them quickly, my husband can make them quickly, and all of my kids can make them quickly. My tweens and teens can follow the easy instructions to put these meals together and have them on the table for the family. You can get started with every plate for just $1.49 per meal. Plus, if you want to add in $1 steaks for life, you can go to everyplate.com slash podcast, enter code 49HAPPY, and add $1 steaks to your subscription. 
everyplate.com slash podcast. Enter the code 49HAPPY. Get $1.49 meals plus $1 steaks for life. That's up to $110 value. If you could use that simplicity and affordability in your life this year, check out everyplate.com slash podcast. Use code 49HAPPY. Now back to the show. Another quote from the year of magical thinking is this. We are not idealized wild things. We are imperfect mortal beings, aware of that mortality even as we push it away, failed by our very complication, so wired that when we mourn our losses, we also mourn for better or for worse ourselves, as we were, as we are no longer, as we will one day not be at all. Change, a change of situation, a new season of life, uh, even a new opportunity, comes hand in hand with some loss, some moving beyond the thing that we once were into the thing that we now are. Even happy changes, for example, a baby going from that sweet army crawl to pulling up on furniture to walking across the room, may have a young mother mourning subtly the loss of this first stage of that child's life and recognizing that that was so sweet. And now that we've moved beyond it, we're not going back, at least not with this one. (laughs) It's a bittersweet feeling. It can be good and bad at the same time. And when we only create space and allow for the good, Culturally, it makes more sense to, you know, we like a happy story. We want to tell about the things that are going well. Uh, Particularly social media is a highlight of all of the wins and seldom includes the losses. And it can be, we can feel some pressure, you know, cultural, social pressure to ignore the things that are going wrong or to pretend like they're not or to hide them even from ourselves to feel bad even within ourselves that we're not entirely satisfied with the way something may be. Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor is a professor of psychology at the University of Arizona, and she studies grief and grieving. One thing that she said in a recent interview with the American Psychological Association is that the heart of grieving is really around yearning, yearning for a person or things to be back the way they were before. Then she talks about a resilience model. It's interesting. She says, many people need exposure to the memories of their loved one or to create space to open up to the experience, what they hoped would happen in order to understand. They'll do different types of exposure therapy. Well, they'll talk through and record these thoughts And then they develop the skills of how do I move into the feeling of grief and then out of it again? This develops new skills around emotional regulation and acceptance. This discussion of figuring out how to move in and out of grief with acceptance and clarity and recording and telling that story in different ways felt really familiar to me to the stress model. And in fact, 
Dr. Pauline Boss, who's a professor emeritus in the Department of Family Social Science at the University of Minnesota, coined a term ambiguous loss in the 1970s. And one of her quotes says, ambiguous loss is not a medical model. It's a stress model focused on resilience. Dr. Pauline Boss talks about ambiguous loss as not the actual loss of a person, but the psychological absence. So maybe someone, a partner, is preoccupied with work, and so they're here, they're you know home sometimes, they're at work sometimes, but their mind is absent. They're not giving the you know attention and, and engagement to the relationship that you hope for, even though you haven't lost that person physically. The psychological absence would be termed an ambiguous loss that the the person's there but not there. This can also happen with our devices. She says even our preoccupation with screens at home can cause a sense of loss of relationship and of uh, engagement among a family because of the preoccupation with our phones or, or screens that there's a sense of loss. I've talked about this with my therapist in terms of not losing something you had, Instead, recognizing that someone or something, some a part of your life, a situation, a relationship, is not going to be the way that you expected it would. Even though it wasn't ever that way, even the idea that you thought it might be and you sort of planned for that can create a sense of ambiguous loss for something that you will not experience. During my experience with miscarriage, I wasn't very far along. I was only 10 weeks pregnant when I started to experience a natural miscarriage. And the grief that I had associated with that loss had less to do with the relationship that I had with this embryo because I hadn't yet formed a relationship with the embryo personally. I I know, you know, women experience pregnancy loss differently. I hadn't felt a movement. I didn't feel intensely connected to this baby the way that I did later on in my pregnancies with my other children. It was early. And my loss was not about that particular infant at that moment in time. It was about the timeline that I was losing. I had a due date. I had started to prepare in my mind for Christmas with a baby and started to plot out you know, how the difference in age would fit between my oldest and this child and all of the different things that would go along with the family dynamics of that spacing and this time next year, X, Y, Z, things can happen. And the loss was not of something that I felt that I had. It was of an idea that I was hopeful for. I think parenting in general can come with this sort of idea of the people who our children may turn out to be. And I'm learning that that's best left wide open. <laughs> it's best left wide open with sort of an, a curiosity around who might you become rather than a prescribed idea of this is who I want you to be. That said, it's really natural to prospect about the future, particularly if you're a parent and you have children. One example that may be relatable to some of you is that we have two boys, 14 and 12, and my husband was a 
sports guy with a capital S. He played all of the sports growing up. He played soccer. He wrestled. He did football. He, you know, with friends played basketball. I don't think he played on a basketball team, but he played basketball with friends and at church. And then he went on to play rugby in high school, in college. He went, he played uh, rugby professionally. He was doing that when we met. He coached rugby. He continues to help out with the rugby team here at the University of Richmond. He loves sports. And, you know, one of, we've talked about how one of his expectations, just a simple expectation was that it would be so fun when he had these boys, you know, to throw the ball around with him, to teach him to catch, to go out and kick a soccer ball or to toss a rugby ball around and show up to their soccer games or their football games. And while we gave our boys both many opportunities to try these different things, they both played soccer, they both have, you know, tossed the, the rugby ball and the football around, neither of them is interested. They don't really like sports the way that my husband did. And not because they're not good at them. They're pretty coordinated and strong, and they're just not that interested. That's not where their passion lies. And while we still can do it, you know, we, we can toss a frisbee or we can go out and bring a rugby ball to the beach or whatever, our preconceived idea and this expectation, even though it was a lightly held expectation of in this stage of life, shuttling the boys back and forth to, you know, sports practice and having the teammates over for Gatorade and pizza parties and and this sort of the the lifestyle that comes with that type of situation, which many of you probably have experienced or are experiencing, like a sporty kid lifestyle. And not to say that boys are the only ones because our daughter does love soccer. We love taking her to soccer games and cheering her on and she does go to team parties and things like that. The, there's this sense of ambiguous loss around what we thought might have been that simply isn't. And while it's not something that we want to cry all day about and spend a long time on, it is a part of our human experience to recognize sometimes I feel bad that we're missing out on that. And not even for our kids' sake, because to be totally honest, our boys don't, they don't feel bad about it. They're not sad about it. They're fine. They're doing the things they love to do and we're happy to support them in those things. I feel a little bit sad sometimes for me because that was a, a mothering experience that I was kind of excited about that it turns out might not be part of my motherhood experience, at least not right now. So what do you do with that? What do you do with my kids are healthy and they're happy and I love them and they're wonderful and I appreciate who they are. And there's also this subtle sense of sometimes I feel a little bit sad for the loss of something that I hoped for that hasn't come to be. You create space to feel that. And that feeling is grief. Now we're going to circle back around to the waves because what I've recognized, along with the help of my great therapist, is that similar to the way that I reacted when surfing, knowing that these waves were going to crash, but trying to just avoid it and pretend it wasn't going to happen, I'd sort of run from it and then it would be worse off than if I had just acknowledged it and accepted it and felt it, like hold my breath 
it's uncomfortable to be under the water like that. Hold onto the board, feel it, but also come up on the other side and being able to breathe rather than pretending it's not going to happen and then just being tossed around by it. This is the way that I've also been approaching some of these, these emotional experiences of grief. I don't really want to be experiencing them. I think that I tell myself, well, that's not valid because my kids are happy. And so why should I, you know, a, a football, a Super Bowl party is kind of silly. Why do I care about that? Invalidating my own feelings is what's silly. Acknowledging, accepting, and allowing my own feelings is uncomfortable and also allows me to get to the other side. The way that I've come up with, with my therapist and one of my friends to do this is to include space to record that grief in my journal. I am a longtime gratitude journaler. I've talked about it for years on this podcast and, and practiced it years before that. I believe in the power of writing down and training our brains to recognize what's good in our lives. And now I'm coming to a place of, of kind of full circle allowance for the things that are hard in our lives too, and creating a, a physical space to write that down. So uh, at the beginning of the year, actually the end of last year in December, I went out and, and found a new journal. I didn't have to buy it because I have a little stack of journals at home. So I grabbed a new empty one and I wrote on the inside cover, my journal of gratitude and grief. And I l allow space, I give intentional space when I write to write about the things that I'm loving and that are going so well in my life and that I appreciate and things that I'm sad about and that I feel badly aren't going the way that I hoped for and expectations that are not being met. And I'm learning to give space for both. It has long been known that writing about our emotions allows us to process and make sense of them. It provides a structured way to explore and express complex feelings, and all of that contributes to our emotional well-being. So while it seems paradoxical that writing about things that have been hard or that you're sad about in your life contributes to your well-being, that is what research shows. Keeping a journal that includes both positive and challenging experiences can also enhance self-awareness, personal growth, and discovery. Balancing gratitude and grief in writing can also help you maintain a more balanced perspective on life. There is a time where gratitude and optimism as the only thing that we care about becomes toxic positivity because life is not only made up of positive events. So creating space for both gives us balance. Another thing that is important about actually documenting these things is the ability to observe your personal journey over time. It can highlight for you your own personal growth, resilience, and the ability to find joy even amid the challenges. Research suggests that regular journaling, including expressions of gratitude and processing grief, can contribute to overall mental health outcomes. It may reduce symptoms of anxiety and depression. Encouraging you, so this is my invitation, write about your gratitude and your grief. Foster a holistic approach to your emotional well-being where there's space for both. Take that deep breath and dive under the water and It'll be uncomfortable and also 
intentionally allowing space for that prevents you from being tossed and turned by your emotions when you're not expecting it. Of course, you don't need my permission to experience your emotions. Sometimes it's helpful to hear that someone else is feeling something similar and going through something, you know, even simple things that are hard in daily life. That's part of being human. It's part of the, the richness of the fabric of our lives. And I hope that if you feel like this exercise could be helpful for you, that you will also grab yourself a gratitude and grief journal and explore accepting your emotions more broadly this year with me. Thank you so much for tuning in today to episode 268. Friends, we're so close to 2 million downloads. I'm really excited and I'm trying to figure out the best way to celebrate. So if you have any ideas of how to celebrate this milestone in the podcast, send them my way at Miranda at livefreecreative.co. I also, just the two things that I'm going to be talking about for a little while are that I have some space on my trip to Turkey. I had a friend who I went out to lunch with who said, I'm so, she's coming to Turkey. She signed up for the trip. She said, I'm so glad. I'm so excited about this trip because I wouldn't want to go on this trip just by myself with my family. I, I don't know enough. I don't feel comfortable. And so having it be a guided girls trip with someone I I like and knowing that we're going to have everything planned for us, that we just show up. It's a stress-free vacation, but also a really incredible cultural exploration of this diverse and beautiful land is going to be so fun. I said, I agree. I'm so happy that you're coming. So there's still space on that trip. If you want to explore the world and you don't really know where to get started, this could be a place to get started. You can sign up through the link in the show notes today. And finally, if you could use some help navigating your own emotional journey, uh, having some clarity in your values, your strengths, and the decisions that you're trying to make right now in your lives, you may be interested in my coaching. I have free exploratory coaching calls available through the link in my show notes. It's a half hour call where we can just chat and you can see if it's a good fit. I can explain more about how my coaching process works. And if you are interested, you can sign up and become a coaching client where I will give you regular support, encouragement, and advocate for you in living your best life. I hope you have a wonderful week and I will chat with you again soon. Bye-bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.